0: Good morning, everybody. Welcome to hour number two of Christian Worldview with Dr. Tony Beam. That would be me. We're heading into the second hour here this morning, and we got a lot of good stuff here to talk about between now and nine o'clock. Also, eight fifteen this morning coming up, we've got uh, an interview, our weekly meeting with Senator Josh Kimbrell from over in Spartanburg. So we'll be talking to him about the legislative agenda coming up next week. So, and also the big important vote for. Uh, Supreme court justice, Gary Hill, last man standing. He's the only one out of three that haven't dropped out, withdrawn from the race. So, uh, barring, you know, some kind of intervention here at the last second, I guess, uh, he's going, Gary Hill will be justice. Gary Hill next Wednesday. So, uh, when the joint session comes together to make that decision, um, all right, just quickly, I'm, I'm trying to do this maybe like once an hour so that everybody that's listening uh, can kind of get up to speed. And after probably next week, I'm not going to talk about it so much. But his radio talk is uh, going to be going away March 31st. So all of the programming that you're listen to, listening to now, including this radio show, will no longer be out there on the 91.9 and 89.7 seven. There's going to be a new format. Don't know what that is yet. It's probably going to be music based, but um, and as soon as we know, we'll let you know. Uh, Gary Miller's retiring. He's been here a long time. He's done a, an incredible job. We've worked together in this studio for a lot of years, and um, so at his retirement, the decision has been made just to switch over the format. Let the talk format go. Um, I'm gonna to try to keep doing this show in some form I, I'm I'm meeting today to start the process of finding out what kind of equipment I'm gonna I'm gonna need I'm gonna to try to be switch over to um, stay on Facebook live for those of you that watch the show this way um, also maybe get a YouTube uh, channel uh, you know it's a People are doing that. There's a lot of and, – and I'm I'm saying more now than I know about this stuff because I'm just not up on all the technology. But uh, we're, we're going to try to do that. And I've got a website that's connected to the show that's been out there for a while. Um, Hannah and I, you know, we're going to try to put stuff up. I think Hannah put things up. Um, but it hasn't really been very robust. It hasn't been paid attention to. I'm going to do my best to try to turn that website into a conservative news source for you about things going on in South Carolina and try to do updates regularly, and you should be able to stream the show from there. In other words, if you want to get it live like you're doing right now, um, you can listen to it on the, the website and then... You know, And, and it, then if you want to listen to the podcast, the podcast will be posted, and it'll probably be about 50 minutes long. So anyway, that's probably more ex, explanation than you need. But uh, the two things that you need to keep in mind, his radio talk, 919-897, will no longer be his radio talk after March 31st. You tune in on April 1st, you're going to hear something totally different. Uh, but Christian Worldview with Dr. Tony Beam, Um, is going to continue in some form, at least as long as I can do it and as long as I can figure out what what form that it will take that it makes sense. All right. um, I want to talk a little bit about Ron DeSantis and this whole battle over AP African-American studies. But before we do that, let's talk to Gene. Gene, go ahead.
1: Yeah, uh, I'm grieved over the fact that you and Gary are leaving. I'm, I'm I, I started listening to you fellows about the second week I moved here to South Carolina, Greenville, uh, back in 2007. So that's quite a while, Tony. We're talking almost uh, 15, uh, well, almost 16 years by the time you will have uh, ceased yeah. the program. And yeah. I want to thank both of you guys for, uh, for providing uh, my, my coffee uh, uh, fellowship, if you want to call it that, my um, breakfast fellowship. Uh, up and wow. down moments and talking to you fellows and I think the format of this whole program is for me has been absolutely wonderful and informative, both uh, socially, politically, and theologically, uh, given the scope of programs that that have been uh, aired on this program. Um, What do I say? I mean, I do want to tell you one thing, though. I remember the first time I put it on, you had a guy named Marcus Buckley on the program. Do you remember Marcus Buckley? Oh,
0: of course. He just got a brand new job. So, yes, he's going to Cornell University to lead their um, student, um, like the Christian wing of their student section there. So, anyway.
1: Uh, You mean in Ithaca, New York?
0: Yes, that's right. He's been down in Florida as a pastor for a number of years, and I got—I con- was contacted not long ago to give him a reference, and it was from Cornell. And so I talked. I guess they interviewed me for forty-five minutes about wow. Marcus and his character and all that. So they've hired him. Yeah.
1: Did you did you note? Know, well, the first time I, I heard the program and I heard Marcus talk, I had the impression that this guy was walking around. Dressed up like a, a classical Texan with a ten-gallon <laughs> hat, a snake, uh, a snake-booted uh, shoes.
0: Well, and, he, uh, he it might he might have been more likely walking around in a Batman suit because he had a tendency to do that, to dress up like Batman occasionally. <laughs> and I told him at Cornell. I said, "Now, you know, he they they asked me, so well, does he have a non-serious side?" I said, well, um, he's a guy that dresses up like Batman occasionally, and he's got a real nice suit. So they, they're they getting it all. They understand what they're getting well, at Cornell. Wow.
1: Boy, so. I think this is going to be culture shock for him because yes. – uh, of uh, real culture shock up in Africa. I mean, uh, the weather, etc. So uh,
0: yep I would well, think. I hope
1: he does well up there, and, and he's well, I'm listen, sure he will.
0: You, you've been very kind, and uh, yeah, we've gotten into some tiffs on the radio before, well, but that's the way uh, it ought to be. I mean, right. yeah, I mean, uh, nothing, nothing serious. But I look. If uh, I hope you'll, uh, you know, I'll be telling people starting in March if they want to continue to find me, that I'm going to have a platform out there. So I, I hope you'll be one of the listeners.
1: Well, again, I, I, I'm sure you'll hear from me between now and the, and the final date. Yeah. But nevertheless, I, well, thank I you. feel very, very sad that you
0: guys are leaving. Thank you, brother. And, and I want to thank you. I appreciate the call. I uh, thank you. Um, all right, uh, back to DeSantis. Uh, this is by Stanley Kurtz over at National Review. And I, you know, people ask me sometimes, why are you sort of high on DeSantis as somebody who you would like to see run for president, maybe get the nomination and get elected? And and one of the reasons is, for me, is because of the wide range of issues that he's willing to engage. I mean, how many governors do you know would be up to speed on what the curriculum standards are for AP African-American studies and would know that they're putting a bunch of stuff in there about Black Lives Matter. They're putting a bunch of stuff in there about uh, reparations they're putting stuff in there that's a revision of history, and then would step up to the plate, even if he knows this, once he's made aware, would be willing to step up and do something about it, demand that those standards be changed. And yet, that's exactly what he did. Uh, the revised APAAS curriculum has many fewer topics than the original, nearly. Every now omitted topic was filled with socialism, CRT, or some other radical perspective. Originally, an entire topic was devoted to Franz Fanon's glorification of violence and its influence on black radicals in America. That topic is gone now. Another topic, one-sidedly excoriated American foreign policy in Haiti. That's gone. The unit on black queer studies. I mean, can you imagine? This is for high school students. Has been this has been deleted. DeSantis won that showdown in 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 this particular instance a topic on afrocentricity, the scholarly legitimacy of which is very much in dispute is gone also gone is a CRT based unit calling colorblindness racist in direct violation of Florida law, units plugging reparations, prison abolition I mean th- this curriculum, advocated for the abolishing of prisons that's a political statement that's got nothing to do with african-american history intersectionality there was there was information on that the socialist platform of the movement for black lives matter and the revolutionary meditations of marxist radical robin dg kelly all of that is gone that's a lot of radicalism taken out of this curriculum. Now, what's interesting is, you know, the the people, the, the curriculum that the people that make this curriculum put it out there are trying to say, oh, uh, Desantis didn't have anything to do with this. We were thinking about uh, taking this stuff out anyway. Yeah, that's the ticket. Long before Desantis said anything about it, we were going to uh, take it out ourselves because we started thinking baloney. I mean, that is hogwash, am I? Because there's no way that they would have done any of this if DeSantis hadn't called attention to it. This is a big win for him. Um, And this is, you know, in addition to the cuts out of the curriculum, there have been a good many welcome additions. The original framework omitted any serious discussion of black politicians. When you go through the socialist readings that dominated the original APAAS, you find out why most of the radicals assigned in the first version of the course are deeply hostile to black politicians. I mean, you, you know, you, it's incredible that there's a division within the African American community where African American scholars that are into critical race theory want to undermine leadership by say Martin Luther King jr. So, a lot of the things that were omitted that are important parts of African American history in the United States, which is what this is supposed to be about, have now been reentered into the curriculum. So kudos to Governor DeSantis, just another example of the governor realizing being aware of a problem that was is a serious problem. And this is going to in fact, in fact, uh, affect, I'm sorry, the entire country because it's not just Florida. these standards, are going to be in textbooks all over the country. They're changing the standards, what is in there for textbooks that will be in every classroom that teaches this course. So kudos. Uh, Good job, Governor. Thanks for being aware, and thanks for stepping up to the plate. You can make a difference when you do that. We welcome to the show South Carolina Senator Josh Kimbrell. Good morning, sir. How are you?
2: Hello, good morning, Doctor. You know, every time I, I hear that bumper music there, the one y'all just played, it reminds me of that episode of The Office where they burn some toast, you know? Yeah. So that's, that's how my mind works. I think of uh, random TV shows I used to watch in college. So.
0: Well, I do that all the time. I'm always coming up with movie references and things like that. Um, the problem is I can't do many Office references because I, I was just – my wife loved The Office. I just never – I mean, I would watch it and I would I would get it sometimes and <laughs> sometimes I was scratching my head so but man so Denise, all I can think she's...
2: about is I mean there'd be a good office episode on how to take down the Chinese spy balloon you
0: know yeah.
2: I, <laughs> I would think that they probably have a way to do it on there you and, and that's what I jokingly <laughs> told some folks earlier this morning I said you know if this spy balloon we're flying over South Carolina I have a feeling that some of our friends including me, I mean heck I I, I like to go play shooting I'm I would think somebody would have taken a pop shot at that already. You know, yeah, I, don't, well, I don't know if they'd have made it over South China for
0: long. Well, if uh, if they have guns that can reach the place where the spy balloons floating, then uh, I'd like to get one. I mean, I want to find out where they got them. <laughs> so yeah, I'm being a little I'm being a little facetious. Yeah, words. of of course. Well, um, you know, it is kind of weird that we've got party balloons owned by the Chinese floating around up there, and everybody's going, "Yeah, we know." Uh, it's, uh, we know, we'll, we'll, hopefully it'll go away.
2: <laughs> you know, I'm an, I'm, an, I'm an 80s kid, so all I can think about is if Reagan were president, I'm pretty sure this would have already been blown out of the sky. Um, that's,
0: that's what I'm thinking.
2: I, I, I don't think it would have been there long.
0: Let me ask you uh, about South Carolina stuff. Um, next week, uh, kind of give us a preview of some of the things that are going to be coming through the legislature next week, the important stuff.
2: Well, I mean, this week was good. We passed Certificate of Need and school choice legislation. That was a big week for the Senate, two in one. We got two done in one week. But, you know, I feel like next week's going to be a a really tough fight and an important fight, but a fight, and that's going to be over reinstating the heartbeat bill. And uh, you and I have talked about this privately, but, I mean, just to inform listeners, there is an effort among a lot of us to get back off of being a 20-week state. We're a 20-week abortion state because of the actions of the Supreme Court. And we're doing all we can a lot of us, to try to overturn that, try to move back from that. And, uh, and Tony, I'm, I'm reasonably confident we can, but we're going to have to avoid some of the, 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 the extreme uh, pulling on this. So what I mean by that is last time we had one Republican in Sandy Sin who crossed over and voted with the Democrats in favor uh, or against the heartbeat bill. I didn't, she didn't even want a six-week uh, ban. And I'm expecting that'll be the case again. We had one Democrat, Kent Williams, cross over and vote with the Republicans in favor of it. So they kind of watched. Of course, a lot's happened since then, including the overturning of Roe. And you've got some folks who say, well, gosh, heartbeat bill's not good enough. We just got to go straight to an outright ban from conception. We tried that three different times in the Senate last year. The vast majority of us in the Republican caucus and the majority of the Senate as a whole voted for it. But we couldn't get over our cloture rules. And there's two or three holdouts inside our own party. And so what we're trying to do, those of us who want to advance the ball here, are saying, all right, let's at least get the heartbeat bill back in. Because what I said last year is if we would have passed a fix, as we call it, to the heartbeat bill, in other words, put some constitutional language in there that would have maybe prevented the Supreme Court from taking up the case that they did that ultimately resulted in heartbeat being struck down on three to two votes, uh, we might have avoided this. So we're trying to go back now, do a fix to heartbeat, change some language, get some of the conflicts out to try to take it out of the take away some of the court's arguments, and then we, we're going to have a new state Supreme Court by the, this time next week. We'll have a new member. We're going to replace uh, Kay Hearn with Gary Hill, who's a conservative, and K. Hearn was one of the three that voted to overturn Heartbeat. So if we pass a new law on Heartbeat, there's a good chance we can go back before the state Supreme Court and get it right this time and at least be a Heartbeat Bill state instead of a 20-week state. So That's going to be a really hard fight. What, the, what we're going to have to do, though, is have everybody who wants to be pro-life, who wants to support pro-life measures, stick together to avoid having those two or three liberal Republicans and the Democrats and peeling off and keeping us from getting anything. And there's some folks that can make the perfect enemy of the good in the House and the Senate. Say, well, six weeks isn't good enough. It's conception or bust. Uh, respectfully, while I understand that and I've always supported a the, the law that protects life at conception, you don't have the votes. We've tried it. We've taken no fewer than three votes. We don't have the votes. And uh, if if that is pushed, my fear is we end up uh, with nothing, and we say a 20-week abortion state until 2025, which would be a tragedy.
0: Yeah, I, I agree, uh, Josh, 100%. I look, I, I want to protect life beginning at conception because I believe that's when life begins. I think that you can make that statement theologically, you can make it scientifically, um, and and you can defend it. But we, I can't have what I want. Because I don't sit in the South Carolina Senate. And those who do, there are enough people over there sitting in the Senate right now who are not willing to vote for a life conception bill that we're not going to get one through. And that after this summer, I mean, I may have doubted that um, beginning the summer when we started this special session last year. But by the time we got to November, it was clear That that was the case, and that nobody was going to budge. So when nobody moves, it's hard people to get their head around.
2: It's hard to get the and look. Here's what people say all the time, and I try to remind them this isn't the House. People say, "Well, gosh, y'all got a a strong, almost supermajority of Republicans in the Senate, and you've got too many people who are pro-choice in the Republican Party." That's not true. The vast majority of us in the Republican caucus in the Senate are are pro-life and very pro-life. The problem is in the Senate again. It's not the House. And the Senate, you've got to you got to be able to shut down a filibuster. you got to be able to shut down a debate. And, unfortunately, we don't have the votes for that. Okay, we have the votes. to If it were just a simple majority, we would have passed a conception bill last year. But in the House, it is a simple majority. And a lot of people don't really know the difference. They'll say, well, gosh, the House could do it. Why can't the Senate? Because of those rules on cloture and getting a filibuster shut down. That's why. Um, we, we, we have to have basically two-thirds of the Senate agree – Uh, Three-fifths on some votes, two-thirds on others to shut down debate. And we didn't have that. We don't have that now. So we're going to have to do what we can to get that two-thirds number to stop a filibuster. and all we can do that is do six week ban.
0: Let's talk about ESAs for a minute, because the Senate did pass that bill this week. And uh, were you able, I know you, and along with some others, were working to try to expand that bill so that the number of people that can take advantage of it would be greater than what the bill started out with. Were you able to get any of those amendments in?
2: Well, we got some of them. We didn't get everything. So what Senator Clymer from York and I and Senator Johnson, so Senator Clymer, me and, and Senator Johnson all worked together to try to increase the cap. And uh, prior to our amendments, the only people that could have participated were basically poverty level and below. We want to help those folks certainly as a priority. But we also wanted people who are in the middle income brackets to be able to have the option of school choice for their kids. And so we were able to do that. We were able to uh, increase the overall cap in terms of income uh, uh, eligibility. We did get that adopted, but we were unable to get a uh, to increase the over overall number of slots. We I wanted to Senator Johnson Clymer and I. We wanted to increase the number of overall available spots in the scholarship slots uh, by up t- to thirty thousand, somewhere in that neighborhood, twenty to thirty thousand. We did not. We were not able to do that. So now we only we're holding around five thousand. graduate up to ten thousand later, but. Uh, so it was Nick's success. We were able to expand the eligibility, but not the overall size of the program yet. But, look, it's still the biggest step forward towards school choice the Senate's ever passed, and uh, I'm hopeful this is the first of many things to come. We're going to debate uh, the pay scholarship program later in the year, I believe, and that will be a tax credit program in addition to just a
0: voucher program.
2: So we're looking at an all-of-the-above approach to increase access to public-private school choice for every South Carolina family.
0: Senator, it's always good to have you with us. I appreciate uh, the call today. We look forward to our Friday visits, and I pray that you and your family will have a great weekend.
2: Well, thank you, sir. I always enjoy being with you, and I hope you have a good weekend. Also.
0: Okay, um, I want to talk about electric cars here for a few minutes because there's an element to electric vehicles that I don't hear discussed much. And, in fact, I confess I hadn't really thought about it simply because I assumed something – that apparently is not true. Now, this is what I'm talking about. You know, you go out on a really cold morning, and what can happen sometimes when you try to start your car? I mean, sometimes the battery's dead because the cold, particularly prolonged cold, affects the battery. And whether it affects the battery enough to not to keep it from starting your car it is going to affect the battery efficiency. It draws down the amount of power that's available. And that's why, you know, all these commercials talk about cold cranking amps, how many of those that a particular battery has. And that's particularly important if you live in a cold climate. Now, here in South Carolina, we have to endure, what, maybe two weeks' worth, not all strung together, but in total two weeks' worth of really, really cold mornings, Uh, maybe 14 days or so. So it's not going to be such a big problem here. But think about Wyoming, Wisconsin, parts of Illinois, parts of the Northeast. I mean, we're talking, for for example, the, the story that I'm referencing, I'm going to reference today from Daily Signal, is talking specifically about Jackson, Wyoming, and Cheyenne, Wyoming. In Jackson, Wyoming right now, the highs for the day are below freezing. So it doesn't get above freezing most of the day. And in Cheyenne, it's right around freezing for a high. So relying on battery-powered electric vehicles in a cold climate takes a lot of courage because just like your car may not start because of the loss of battery efficiency due to the cold... An electric car has the same problem. But, of course, its problem is how much shorter of a distance you can drive without recharging when it's really cold outside. I mean, it it drastically affects the amount of driving time and the battery efficiency and the time it takes to charge. And yet, you know, the, the, the Biden administration is spending – money on charging stations all across the country, even though electric cars are very impractical in cold climate where there's cold temperatures all the time. Cold temperatures are one reason. I'm reading from the article now. This is Diane Fugat-Roth. Cold temperatures are one reason why at the end of 2021, the latest full year available, Wyoming had only 510 registered EVs that's one per ever one every 1135 people compared to one per every 69 people in California and California's got 40 million people living in California almost and so even so that there's so few electric vehicles in Wyoming for practical reasons Wyoming has been granted 27 million dollars of the 7.5 billion that the new Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act allocates to the states to build electric vehicle charging stations. That works out to over 52000 per EV in the state. Wyoming is turning down the funds because the cowboy state doesn't want to be responsible for maintaining a system of charging stations spaced 50 miles apart as called for by the Infrastructure Act. See, they're telling you This is government overreach at its worst. This is why federalism works. The states know how to make these things work. They know what's needed and what won't work in their state. Then the federal government comes along and says, oh, no, 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 no. You take this money, you're going to have to put a charging station every 50 miles. Wyoming asked for the charging stations to be located only on smaller highways in the tourist areas close to Yellowstone National Park and the Grand Teton National Park. That's, that makes sense because that's where people are going to be. High, those are high traffic areas. Who else? Where else do they go in Montana? Well, that's, that's what I'm saying. Or Wyoming. Or Wyoming. Okay. So, you know, no, they want them in rural areas 50 miles apart where somebody might go a week and not even know that there's a charging station out there because they don't use the road. The federal government refused Wyoming's request. They said no if you're going to get the money you got to you got to put them 50 miles apart. As Congress considers raising the debt ceiling, such wasteful expenditures should be trimmed. North Dakota has the fewest electric vehicle registrations in the United States. That's 380. It's going to get 26 million for charging stations. And then you've got Alaska. They've got Very few electric vehicles. They're getting 52 million. That's about 40,000 per electric vehicle in the state of Alaska. West Virginia, which has 1,010 EVs, will get 46 million, about 46,000 each. But this, this is the thing when we think about alternative energy sources, we, we forget the laws of physics. And you know what? You can't overcome the laws of physics. Cold causes the power in these electric vehicles to lessen. A study by truck manufacturer Autocar shows that electric vehicles lose, on average, a third of their range in the winter, which reduces the typical 240-mile range to 160 miles. Now, you can add a heat pump. If you add a heat pump to the car, then the loss is less, but you would it's only by about 20 miles. Instead of losing down to 160, you, you can go up to a whopping 180 miles. You realize, you know, they're talking about the average that a person drives a day as being about 35 miles. I want to know these people. I mean, I drive 35 miles before breakfast. I, d- I don't get I, I don't get people that are riding around you know at 30 40 miles a day now maybe that's typical
3: but well you know around here 180 miles you can get to a lot of cities and back in, in right. around here but you go out to wyoming and montana no, no. 180 well, even, miles you might go that far before you reach the next city
0: even even california i mean i you know it, it, it as far mm. as going from one end to the other north carolina have you ever driven from the North Carolina mountains to the coast. right? I mean, it, it's a, you know... Now, in, it, in Los Angeles,
3: where you're there and you don't have these heat ex, heat and cold extremes, and you're sitting out there on these, you know, eight-lane freeways, just burning gas because the traffic's not moving, you're stuck in a traffic jam every every day, then I could see, hey, an electric vehicle out there, yeah, I've, that, that might work out pretty good for you, but... You know, places like this—it just, why? What's wrong with people that we don't say, if the state says, let us put the charging stations here, and then, when the public complains because there's not a charging station at this distance or this distance, then the state can come back and say, we need to add a few charging stations. Yeah. Let the let the public and and the consumer tell you what is needed.
0: Well, that's that's, you know, that's federalism and that's capitalism and those are the two things that combined have made America great. I mean, there's a lot of things to combine, more than that, but certainly federalism and capitalism, the idea of a consumer-driven economy plus the the federal government allowing the states to work out solutions that work best in their areas. But we don't have a philosophy like that in Washington today. We have big government oversight and expand the expansion of the federal government, and the federal government wants to run your life. It wants to run everybody's life. I mean, I and and I'm not saying that just to be mean, or I, I'm just telling you what what's what. When when you've got money going to the states, and the federal government hears a reasonable proposal based on. Facts on the ground in the state of Wyoming. And they say, nope, this is one-size-fits-all. If you're going to get the money, you got to put – that. that's just uh, – that's short-sighted. It's wasteful, and it's an indicator that the current administration wants to rule the roost when it comes to everyday decisions. And that's not best for the country. All right, and let's wrap up our talk about electric cars. We're talking about the waste – that, is, uh, that happens when the government doesn't take into consideration that really cold temperature states, states that are cold much of the year, uh, are not very practical when it comes to electric cars. Now, uh, it, or it, I should say it's not very practical to have an electric car in that environment, Um Now, that's going to change over time because electric cars, the batteries are going to become more sophisticated. They're going to find out more ways to heat internally uh, so that you don't lose so much battery power. Uh, Right now, even, as we said, with a heat pump, so to speak, in an electric car, you're only going to get about 20 miles more out of a charge when it's cold than you would if you didn't have a heat pump. And those heat pumps are pretty expensive, so it's really, I don't know that it's worth it uh, to add one. But they're going to improve that, okay, over time. And I, look, I like the idea of electric cars. I'll be the first one to say I I would like to have an electric car um, to go along with my gasoline-powered truck. But I can't give up the gasoline-powered truck because you cannot pull a camper or pull anything of, of substance with an electric truck for very long. I mean you can, you can pull it, but you're gonna have to you're gonna have to plug in and recharge a lot more often. So I've been doing some research here, car and driver magazine, a couple of other magazines. You know, what is cheaper to own? An electric car or a gasoline powered car? And I don't have time to go through all the stats. If you want to go, you can go to Car and Driver. Uh, let's see how long. Oh, no. <laughs> Website's way too long to give you all of it. But uh, if you go to Car and Driver, you can find an article called EV versus gas, which cars are cheaper to own. And they went into in-depth looking and compared the F one fifty, the Ford F-150 truck gas powered to the Ford F-150 Lightning, which is electric. And then they looked at the Hyundai, um, which is, uh, let me see what the name of the the Hyundai Kona and the Kona Electric. So they compared these two cars, all cost over three years. Now, to start with, the purchase price. Uh, the Kona, which is gas-powered, made by Hyundai, is 22595 The Kona Electric is $35,295. Same thing, F-Ford 150 gas-powered, $40,960. The F-150 Lightning is $54,769. Now, that's before you factor in the the government tax credits for buying an electric vehicle, which around $7,500 can be a little bit more than that. And then you have to look at maintenance costs, and you have to look at energy uses. You look at gasoline costs, charging costs, because those have to be factored in. Depreciation. Uh, So what Car and Driver did, and you can read all, I'm not going to give you all these numbers because there's a ton of them in here. But the bottom line is that over three years of ownership, so which was cheaper? They, They just picked three years not the life of the vehicle. Some studies say that if you average out the life of the vehicle, that the electric vehicle is cheaper if you keep it for, you know, five, six, seven years. So, but Car and Driver says by their calculations, the F-150 electric is $2,664 cheaper to own and operate. Over the first three years, than the gas counterpart, and that's without tax credits. Then it becomes ten thousand one hundred and sixty-four dollars less. So it is cheaper. I mean, it, what what you would expect is that an electric vehicle is cheaper over three years. Why? Well, the main thing is gas, because you're you're plugging it in. You're not getting a gas handle and plugging it in. And you know, right now, my truck, my Chevy Silverado, it it takes um, you know at three dollars, and I think the last I paid yesterday was three dollars and a dime, three ten, at three dollars and ten cents to fill up. It's about seventy five dollars. I mean, you know, back when gas prices were at four dollars, it was costing me a hundred dollars to put gas in my truck, which is ridiculous. But in any event, uh, so the Kona Electric, what about it? On the other hand, it's more costly than the gas version. So, and, and by $2,041 without the tax credit, but $5,459 cheaper when you apply the tax credit. So both vehicles, the Hyundai Kona Electric and the F-150 Lightning, over three years, it'll cost you less if you have them as compared to a gasoline car, even with the maintenance cost, that's considering electricity usage versus gas, everything. But a lot of people are still skeptical because they, they want to know about the life of the battery. I mean, if you have to replace that battery, what does that look like? And how are we going to dis- dispose of these batteries? I mean, you're g- you have to fill up landfills once you um, you know have all these big electric batteries uh, but then again there's recycling electric batteries some of some parts of them most of the parts in fact can be recycled so there you go all right couple of comparison stories for you as we wrap up the week this week Utah's Spencer Cox who is the governor signed a bill this week protecting minors from life-altering transgender surgery so, is life really different? You know, when you start talking about federalism that we were talking about in relation to the electric cars in Wyoming, is life really different depending on where you live, if you're in a conservative state versus a progressive state? And I think when you hear these two stories, you'll, you'll see immediately the difference. Utah minors can no longer receive sex reassignment surgeries after Governor Cox a Republican signed a bill restricting restricting transgender medical procedures on Saturday. We need this bill in South Carolina. We've got a bill in the House and the Senate. We've got to pass it to protect children from abuse, from mutilation. You know, studies and I'm I'm doing some research on this and I'll I'll be able to talk more Knowledgeably about it um, a little bit later on, but um, there there are a lot of studies coming out now that indicate that transgenderism is actually being caused by social pressure. It's got nothing to do with uh, people having a, a genuine inborn desire to be a member of the opposite sex. You know, it it because in the last five years. This is a phenomenon that's exploded. And the question is, how did we get, you know, to 2015 in the history of the country without this explosion of people who thought they were transgender? And then all of a sudden it just takes off. Well, it's not because genetically we've suddenly gone through, through some kind of advancement in evolution for people who believe in that kind of thing. Um, you know, that's not the case. What we've gone through is a psychological blitzkrieg on social media and with all these professionals and scientists and counselors coming out and saying, if you have any doubt whatsoever about your gender, then you must be transgender and you ought to transition. And with all that encouraging going on, particularly among adolescents who are very susceptible to acceptance and suggestion, You've got a transgender epidemic, so to speak. And there's a story here. We'll try to get to it on Monday. We're not going to have time to get to it today. But it it talks about video gaming that's now giving people the opportunity to be transgender. Well, let me ask you a question. In a video gaming world, you can be anything you want. So if you're a guy and you want to be a girl, why not just... Pick a girl character and be a girl. But no, people who are transgender want a transgender character, which means transgender is a social construct. Because if you have the cho- uh, the choice in an imaginary, magical world of video gaming where if you're a guy, you can be a girl, or if you're a girl, you can be a guy, why would you not do that instead of picking a transgender character because it's a social construct? The pressure is coming from social media and from media, the the media that being transgender, something about transgenderism is cool and it's hip and it's exciting and it draws attention to you when you really want it the most. So Anyway, back to Utah's bill. It prohibits performing sex-characteristic surgical procedures on a minor for the purpose of effectuating a sex change and allows minors to bring legal action against the person who performed the reassignment surgery if they later renounce their consent. This is a great bill. This is the kind of bill that we need to pass in South Carolina. Now, if you live in Utah, that's the kind of leadership that you have. If you live in Minnesota... This is the kind of leadership you have. A new law declaring a fundamental right to abortion contains no limitations whatsoever based on how developed the child is and whether the child could survive outside the womb. It's essentially infanticide. Minnesota's Democratic Governor Tim Waltz signed into legislation a law that declares every individual who becomes pregnant has a fundamental right to obtain an abortion and to make autonomous decisions about how to exercise this fundamental right. They tried Republicans tried over and over and over to get some reasonable restrictions in to this bill. No. This is, this is what the abortion industry wants. This is what radical progressive Democrats want. They want babies to be killed up to the moment of birth and even beyond if the intent was abortion to start with. Minnesota now has the most radical abortion law in the country. Passed by one vote. By one vote, that's right, in the Senate, 35 to 34. You think it doesn't matter where you live? It matters. Conservative leadership, moral leadership matters. All right, have a great weekend. We'll be back on Monday at 7 o'clock. God bless you.